glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me if you would, out of honor for the Word of God as we read together Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, I've circled that in my Bible, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead un, indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof, neither Yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid." And you may be seated. If you were to continue reading Romans chapter 6, you'd read the word yield again in verse 16. Read it again in verse 19. It's used a couple of times. Talking about who we yield ourselves to and who we yield ourselves to. Are we are servants uh, to whatever we yield to and whatever we obey. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God here, is, is applying the truth of salvation in a very practical way. And that's where we'll begin in just a minute, but what God did in saving our soul is directly used to what we do and how we use our bodies. That's what he's going to deal with, that we've been saved, and of course it is the soul and the spirit of man that are saved and given life, but what he has done in salvation is directly the direct influence of how we use our body as Christians. There are many things today being done by folk who claim the name of Christ, people who profess faith in Christ, but are doing things with their bodies that are, if we read our Bibles and get the mind of the Spirit of God, are evidently not pleasing to God. And yet what will be emphasized is, well, I'm a Christian, but I involve myself in this sinful activity. And I'm a Christian, but then what happens is we change the definition of sin and all these things, when ultimately what it boils down to is there's not yet uh, if you would, a, a deadness to sin that's been reckoned as it should and a life unto God. And having said all that, we conclude here tonight uh, because it deals specifically with how the child of God who knows that they've been saved 
should use our bodies. And what we can do is plug in a number of practical messages. We've dealt with everything from appetite and how we feed our bodies and the fact we're not supposed to be given to appetite, whether it be in our diet. That's the context of Proverbs 23. Uh, we're not to be, of course, given to appetite. We, we deal with the subject of alcohol. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, 31. We've dealt uh, with our appearance and our apparel and how we, with the statement we make with our appearance and apparel. There are more, there's much more that could be preached on that. Perhaps at some time we'll address some of those practical subjects like should Christians get a tattoo? That's, that is a common thing today. It was understood. In my childhood, only the most radically minded people that I was aware of that claimed to be Christians believed it was okay for a Christian to get a tattoo. But how many of us know that this kind of reason? I'll just use this as an example. This kind of reasoning is what is used today. Not having a tattoo or having a tattoo is not what makes you righteous. Do we all understand that? How many know that God saves tattooed people? Just fine. He has no problem with that. He saved the Gadarene who had cut himself all over. Uh, has no problem with that. But is that different saying that God can save someone, obviously, who has tattoos because they've been living in sin, and saying someone who's saved is at liberty to go out and get a tattoo? How many of you know what is a... And I'm getting off course, but bear with me here. How many of you know what is associated and affiliated with tattooing? It's a great atmosphere, those places. Most people are intoxicated or high on drugs and they have it done. I don't think that's an overstatement. It is associated with witchcraft in the Bible. It's associated with idolatry in the Bible. I can tell you that whether or not I wear a swastika has nothing to do with saving my soul. Would you agree? But why would a saved person want to wear one? Why would I want to put something like that on my body? So the reasoning we have today is, well, because that doesn't relate to my salvation, I'm at liberty to do it, is nonsense. This text tells us that because my body belongs to Christ, I'm to use it for acts of righteousness. So you've got to be able to say what I'm doing, my body is right, instead of this. Well, if you can't prove me it's wrong, I'm going to do it, right? That's often the reasoning. If you can't give me scripture, chapter and verse, why I can't and why it's wrong... I'm going to do it. I think it'd be wise to say, can we say it's right? Because our bodies are to be instruments of righteousness. And so, having said all that, I'm trying to put the message tonight in context. We've dealt with appearance and apparel. We've dealt with uh, how we use our tongues, numbers of messages, uh, everything from, uh, we've touched on flattery and uh, 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 being a, uh, we didn't use the term backbiting, uh, what was the word we looked at a few weeks ago? The book of Proverbs, the idea uh, of using our tongue to be a, a, a busybody. What's that? Tailbearer. Thank you. I couldn't come up with the word. Busybody was coming to mind. That's a New Testament word. Tailbearers. I mean, think of the practicality of the messages. Having our ears ready for the word of God. Uh, what we give our ear to listen to. We're not to use our ear to listen to lies. We're not to use our tongue to tell lies. We're to use our tongue to confess the name of God the Father. We use our tongue to confess our faults one to another. Uh, we use our tongue to witness the gospel and give the gospel to the lost. Uh, we're not to take our feet to go do mischief and our hands. And we know with all kinds of practical things that the Bible talks about in the use of the Christian's body. And tonight, so I believe, there should be in our mind a definition of, of actions in the body that are righteous and unrighteous. Those things that are sinful versus those things that are right. You can basically think of it this way. If it's an action that is the product of my lust, it's sin. Period. That's the way Romans 6 deals with it. 
If it is an action with my body that is the product of obedience to God, it's righteousness. So if you are using your tongue to pray and thank God and confess to Him His worthiness of your worship, to confess your sinfulness to Him, you're using your tongue to intercede for someone else, to praise Him for His goodness, you know you're doing right. If you and I are pulling over in a corner somewhere to be a busybody, to be a tail-bearer, to tell a lie or something along those lines, we know we're sinning. If I'm using my eyes to look at somebody and think, how can I serve them? How can I tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ? Wonderful. If I'm looking upon them, how can I use that person for my pleasure, for my advancement? It's called an evil eye. The point is we go on and on, but the things we've looked at are righteousness versus unrighteousness. And with that practical understanding, let's look at this message tonight and understand what God intends our bodies to be used for now that he's saved us. We're going to begin in verse 11 uh, as far as the message tonight is concerned. The context is, does grace give us a liberty or license to sin? Uh, The word for licentiousness in the Bible is lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is a term for licentiousness, meaning giving license to do things that we lust to do, basically. That does grace give us, now that we are forgiven, now that God has extended grace to us and he's willing to pardon us for our sins, is that a license to sin? And of course, Paul's making the point quite the opposite. It's liberty to do right. And so in verse 11, we begin tonight with a call to reckon. It's a Bible where we referenced, I believe, this morning in Sunday school. And he calls upon them. He's as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been our new creatures in Christ. They've been buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. He says in verse 11, likewise, just like Jesus died to sin. It was his, his death was accomplished by the sin of man, but he raised by the power of God unto a life unto God, even so, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He deals with a number of things here as far as what we need to reckon. That word reckon means this, to take an inventory, to estimate or conclude on account of something. So it's like being an accountant. You're taking account of something. means to esteem or to number or to suppose. These kind of things to to do a reckoning. So this is what you do when you balance your checkbook. What you're doing is comparing the reality of what you have versus what you think you have in your bank account, and you're doing a reckoning. And what the Lord is saying is because of Christ's death for you, for your sin, what his death accomplishes for you, for you and in you is a changed relationship towards sin. What his resurrection does is a changed relationship toward God. Before Christ was our Savior, we are servants to sin. We are subservient to the law of sin and death. But he said, I want you to reckon yourselves or take an accounting that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as he died to sin, so you reckon yourself to be dead unto sin. You take a mental account that now that I'm a child of God, sin is no longer my master. I am dead to sin. When sin speaks, I don't have to answer. When sin demands, I don't have to jump. I am dead indeed unto sin. Reckon that. So he deals with, first of all, that we need to reckon the reality of our salvation uh, our salvation is not theoretical, it is, it is reality. And so we need to reckon the reality of our salvation that as Christ died for us and raised from the dead, 
our faith in Him changes everything. It changes, uh, it changes our relation to sin. So we reckon the reality of our salvation, we reckon the relation that we have to sin. What is the relation of the believer in Christ to sin? We are dead indeed unto sin. Dead indeed unto sin. Go to Galatians chapter 5 if you would. Galatians chapter 5. Give me just a moment, I'll find my place. The Bible says in verse 24, now this is just after listing both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, he's listed the works of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in verse 24, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with, what? The affections and lust. He's talking about sinful affections and lust of the flesh. Upon faith in Christ, there is a crucifixion of the fleshly affections and lusts. Meaning, before salvation, we live based on our passions. Based, we're Esau's before salvation. But he said, now that... And by the way, why does Paul have to write this? Someone say, man, that's not the way I feel. This has nothing to do with the way you feel. Well, I say, he says, reckon yourselves... Likewise, reckon you also yourselves. You know what Paul's trying to help them understand? When God saved you, a reality came into existence. His death became your death, and he is teaching them how to appropriate the death of Christ into their own lives. What does his death for me mean? It means I'm forgiven, but what does it mean for me? From God's perspective, the death of Jesus Christ means I've been punished justly for my sins. What does it mean from my perspective? That I am no longer a servant of sin. I am dead to sin. It means nothing to me. I don't want sin. That's, that's what the cross of Christ does. It kills sin in us. It, it, it deals with it once and for all. So then instead of saying, you know what, I've got to, I have to, I got to have my sin fixed. No, Paul is saying, now that you're a believer in Christ, you need to get a hold of what the cross of Jesus Christ means for you. It changed your relationship to sin. Someone says, well, I don't want that. Well, then you don't want salvation. Salvation is not salvation to sin. It's salvation from sin. Sin is no friend to anybody. I believe this. You'll not get saved until you realize sin is your enemy. It's not your friend. It's not your servant. It's your master. Sin is not your pet. We're sin's pet. The law is there. The law of God is there to magnify sin so that we can see our need of a Savior. If God didn't give us a law, would we see how awful sin really is? I read this last week about Achan. What a horrible story. You know what that is? He said, I coveted. I coveted a Babylonian garment and a wedge of gold and silver. And I took it and he died and his children died and his wife died and 36 men died. You know why that's recorded? So we can see how horrible sin is. So that by the time we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, the horror of sin is painted in the, in the account of Calvary so we can look at that and say, look at what sin is. And Christ took care of it so that His cross, instead of being a means of us entertaining sin, by the cross of Jesus Christ, we die to sin. So what does this have to do with our bodies? Everything. What do we commit sins with? Our spirit? Sure. But where does it manifest? In our bodies. Men lust with their eyes. Men curse with their mouths. Uh, men use foul language and unclean language with the mouth. Men go into bars with their feet. 
Men take their hands and smite another man. Men kill with their hands. I understand it starts in the heart, but you know where sin is manifest? In the body. You may I say this tonight. Satan is very interested in bodies. You know how Satan manifests his great work? How do we know that Satan had a hold of the Gadarene? The depiction we have of his body. He's living in the tombs. He's stripped of his clothing. Naked, the Bible says, cutting himself with stones. You know what we're seeing? The impact and influence of Satan and sin by how someone is using their body. I'm just going to say this tonight. One of the things that's very disheartening to me, I remember probably 20, 25 years ago, my mom saying, she was talking to me about music and the influence of music in our culture. And she said, our music in America is becoming ever more like what you'd hear in the African jungles. The heavy beat that goes along with idolatrous practices. Remember her showing me some pictures of people with stretched earlobes. And she said, if we continue, we're going to start living like that. We're there. We call it progress. <laughs> and what goes all along with that, and it's not the music that causes it, it's an indication of it, it helps feed it. But the point was this, the sin and idolatry in the hearts is manifest in the bodies. Even so, when we get saved, you know where the righteousness that God gives you in your heart is manifest? In your body. Paul didn't say that he wanted Christ to be magnified in his spirit, whether by life or death. He said, in my body. You know what? It is Our spirit belongs to God. We're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. Someone says that any instruction, or people who insinuate, they're really not outright say it, that any instruction about how the Christians should use their body is a return to legalism. You watch out for that. God, the God of grace, who saved us by grace, gives us instructions for how to use the body he purchased with his blood. And so then, the reality of our salvation is to be reckoned. There was a, a reality that comes into place that the death of Christ becomes mine, and the reality of my salvation causes me to reckon that I've had a change in my relation to sin. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But it also changed my relation to the Savior. I'm dead indeed unto sin, meaning the voice of sin. I, I no longer have an ear for that now that I'm a believer in Christ. I'm alive unto God. Now I'll say it again. The reason this is written that they have to reckon it is because it's not natural. You by faith have to take God's word and say, when he saved me, he saved me. And when he saved me, he changed my relation to sin. I am no longer under the bondage of sin. And when he saved me, I am now alive unto God. I am now free to live a life of obedience to God. And the rest of the scripture will bear that out. So verse 11, he calls them to reckon the reality of salvation, the change of their relationship to sin, and the change in their relationship to the Savior. Dead indeed unto sin, alive unto God through faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, there is a call to refuse. So because you're dead to sin and you're alive unto God, then that's got to mean something practically. Many a Christian gets deceived into thinking that they have to sin. It's not true. I believe this is one of the great lies of Satan. And when you yield to sin and yield to sin and yield to sin as a believer, what Satan begins to whisper in your mind is, well, you're not really a believer. Or you misunderstood to think that you're supposed to live a life of godliness and holiness and begins to mess with the mind because we've not yet reckoned we're no longer... When sin knocks on your door, you've not reckoned you don't have to answer. Your relation to sin has changed when God saved you. So how do I know if I'm saved? Are you trusting Jesus Christ? 
Get your assurance from the Word of God. And when you have assurance of the reality of salvation from the Word of God, then you must just take God at His Word. Then when He saved me, He changed my relation to sin. When He saved me, He changed my relation to God. Jesus Christ is my Savior means I'm dead to sin, alive unto God. Then there has to be a call to refuse. Verse 12, let not sin, what's the next word? Therefore, because you're dead unto sin and alive unto God, let not sin therefore reign in your spirit. He gets very specific. In your mortal body, don't let your feet yield to sin. Don't step in the direction of something you know is sinful with your feet, your mortal body. Don't do things with your hands that you know are displeasing to God. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. See, he establishes the truth in verse 11. You're dead to sin. And because you're dead to sin, you are no longer subservient. Don't let it reign. How many of you understand what it means to reign? It, it literally means to be king in your life. It no longer has to reign over you. Sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your controller. You do not have to say yes to sin. Now, does this mean that a Christian cannot sin? No, if that was the case, this wouldn't be in your Bible. Obviously, the Romans were sinning, and Paul's helping them understand, you don't have to. You are free. You are now free from this bondage that you've been under. So then, he says, number one, you are to refuse the reign of sin in your life. The reign of sin means every time it calls your name, you say, yes, sir, and obey. Just like a, a prisoner would to a master. When the temptation comes, you just know, I have to yield. It's, it's what I have to do. No, no, no. Let not sin, therefore, reign. Don't let it rule you. Don't let sin control your lips. Don't let sin control your eyes. Don't let sin control your brain. Don't let sin control your hands or your feet. You do not have to. There's a call. Paul says, because of what Christ's death means to you, you do now not have to let sin reign in your life as master. It's no longer your master. God is. And so he calls to refuse the reign of sin in life. The consistent obedience of sin is no longer to be in the mortal body. I believe this with all of my heart. The Bible gives us some very clear instruction on how to use our minds. Is that part of our mortal body? It is. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. How many of a child of God, if you could ask him what they really believe, they would say something like this, I can't help what I think. Oh, we can. We can help what we think. You know why? Because we're no longer bond slaves to sin. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, our sin has been taken care of. We are now free to serve God in our minds. We are now free. But may I say this? We must get a hold of that freedom before we'll exercise that freedom. What Paul is saying is, you've been granted freedom, exercise it. Let me give you an illustration. And we've dealt with this text before, but we're going to deal with it again tonight. Let's say you have someone and all their life, they're living in some foreign country and as a five-year-old child, they were kidnapped from their parents. They were taken off into some far, far-reaching tribe in a jungle and made a slave. And they've been a slave in that tribe ever since they were five years old. That's all they've ever known. When the leadership said, go get us buckets of water, why, they had to go get buckets of water. If they said, come light my pipe, they had to go light the pipe. If he said, go over there and kindle a fire, he had to go kindle a fire. And every day that child had to work all day long, hauling water, 
cutting firewood, building, cooking, whatever you, whatever you want to say. And at night, they'd put that child back in his prison cell. In the day, they'd let him out to go serve and do their various chores and tasks. At night, they'd throw him in the cell, feed him just enough to keep him alive. And one day, somebody comes in there and fights the fight and gets the keys to that child's cell and says, would you like to be free? That child says, what is free? He's been a captive for 10 years. He's a teenager now. What is free? Meaning, I'll open the cell and you never have to come back here again unless you want to. That's all I've ever known. I live here. When they say build a fire, I build a fire. When they say haul water, I haul water. And his benefactor says, but I came in. He realized his benefactor's beat and bloody and bruised. He said, what happened to you? He said, I fought for your freedom and I won it. Now I got the key to your cell. Would you like to get out? And he unlocks the door and opens it. And the person says, I wouldn't know what to do. I don't know how to live free. And the benefactor says, follow me. I'll take care of you. Now at that point, guess what he has? A real salvation. And he sits there and says, I don't know what to do. And he says, follow me. I'll take care of you. And he says, but this is where I live. With that cell is unlocked and the door open, is that person free? But they're going to have the temptation to just do what has been habitually their life, are they not? Until they believe that the benefactor has told the truth and they walk out of that prison cell, now they're free from the, the, the captivity they've been in and they're free to follow the one who actually loves and cares for them. When God saved us, he took our sin, he took on our enemy, he became our benefactor, and he opened the cell door of our prison of sin and said, you are free to follow me. Now, may I ask something? If the cell door is open, does that person have to walk out or can he stay? You hear me? You can stay in captivity to sin if you choose, but you don't have to. Christ has set us free. Not free to live lives as we choose, but free to live our lives as he chooses knowing that he's right. So we're called then, based on the freedom we've been given and the reality of our salvation, the change of our relationship to sin, we're no longer slaves, and the change of our relation to our Savior, we were dead unto God. May I ask something? While that boy is in the prison, the door is locked. If they said, go follow that benefactor, is he free to go or is he in his prison? If he's behind the bars and the door is locked, he can be told to go follow that man all he wants. He can't until he's been set free. And even so it is with us. Upon our salvation, our Sin door, the door of sin has been opened. We are free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ because we are now dead to sin, alive unto God. So the call to refuse is to refuse the reign of sin, the rule of sin in our lives, to, to refuse to resign to sin. That's the word yield. He says in verse 12, Let not the sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither... Yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. He said, not only don't let sin rule you, the word yield here carries this idea, to be to stand beside or to be at hand. Meaning, don't let sin reign, but don't resign to it even. Don't be ready to sin. Don't resign to, well, I'm not sinning now, but I, I'm sure I'll have to. So don't let it rain, but don't yield to it. Don't, don't, don't offer yourself to sin. You're dead to sin. And so then he says, refuse the reign of sin, refuse to resign to sin, refuse to be ready to sin. The Bible says in Romans 13, I believe it is, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Meaning there's got to be the mentality, 
I'm now free from sin. I don't have to let it daily rule over my life. I don't have to just know that when it comes along, I'm prepared to do what sin tempts me to do. No, I am free from sin. So there's a call to reckon the reality of salvation, the change of our relationship to sin, the change of our relationship to our Savior, and therefore there's a call to refuse, refuse the reign of sin over your life, refuse to resign to sin in your life, refuse to be ready to sin in your life. Why? Because you're free from sin. You don't have to be listening for sin's call on you. It's not your master anymore. Number three, there's a call obviously then to righteousness. He contrasts the end of verse 13 with the first part when he says, Neither yield ye your members as the instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. So don't resign to sin, but do be resigned to God. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members. What members is he talking about here? Is he talking figuratively or literally? Literally. Your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, give them to God. This is a prolonged way of saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So the idea would be yield your members to God to be used to carry out His righteous purposes. The call to righteousness, number one, we are to be presented to the Lord, as we've just said in Romans 12, verse 1, but we must understand our members, the members of our body, are to be used to carry out righteousness, obedience to God. He'll define that down in the verses below when he says this in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So how do we do this righteousness? Just obey God. I believe this, when you read Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all, even in the world. When you read that verse and you say, what that means is this week I've got to tell someone about the saving ability of Jesus Christ. And so you're out and about and you take a gospel track and you hand it to somebody, you just obeyed, that was right. You took your hand to transfer the gospel from your hand to theirs. That was right. You opened your mouth to say, could I talk to you about my Savior? You just did what was right in obedience to God's word. That's using your members as instruments of righteousness. When we read in our Bibles, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And you're tempted to complain and you're tempted to murmur. And you say, you know what? You know what? You know what? I don't have to sin. Murmuring is a sin. And it is. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. I don't have to do that. Instead, I can rejoice. What can I rejoice over today? The weather's bad. My job is bad. Home life is bad. I'm frustrated. Tore my hole in my new pair of blue jeans. I just busted my shoes out. And I got rain running down the back of my neck. What is there to rejoice over? Praise God, I'm not in the flames of hell. That's a good start. Amen? The point is this, if you say, I'm going to rejoice because God said to. It's called obeying. It's called obedience. When I am tempted to dispute, and instead I say, no, 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 that's not what the Lord wants, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. It's not what I'm going to say, it's not what I'm not going to say. It's using our bodies as instruments of, of righteousness. When I have something that someone else needs and I can take my hand and hand deliver it to them and say, you know what, God laid this on my heart to give this to you. 
Are we obeying? Given it shall be given. This is the practicality of Christianity. I no longer have to use my hands to steal. I can use my hands to work that I may give. And we could go on and on and on. But the fact of the matter is, now that I've been freed from sin, I am free to use the members of my body to do right instead of doing wrong. I'm free to do that. By the way, I believe this law is the law we're going to be judged by as those that are judged by the perfect law of liberty. If I'm free to do right and I won't do it, what does that say? May I say this? There are those, how many of you would see this different? A child who's raised in a home of parents who are in the habit of stealing things and they teach their child to be a thief. They teach their child to be a thief. And that child steals because he's afraid of the beating he'll get if he doesn't. And by the way, that takes place probably more than we want to know. A child steals and learns to be a thief because mom and dad have taught him to be a thief. And one day, child protective services are called because that child's being abused and is removed from the home. And he says, you know, I hated stealing. I hated stealing. He said, you don't have to steal anymore. If you have a need, you tell us. We'll provide it. And that child is now given a safe home environment, a well a, a, a place of protection. He no longer, no one is forcing him to steal, but he starts stealing everything out of his adoptive parents' home. Is that a little different than stealing because you're beaten? Doesn't the perfect law of liberty call you to a higher standard? See, when we're under sin, Satan beats us if we don't obey. But under grace, you're free to do right. And that's 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 part of how our works are judged is by the law of liberty. When I was free to do right, am I doing it? Well, the call to righteousness, we are, we are to present ourselves to the Lord, our members, as instruments of righteousness. What's an instrument? We're not talking about, I mean, these are instruments for music. Why do we use that term? It's a tool to accomplish a task. That's what it is. You have instruments of warfare, instruments of music. You have different kinds of instruments. An instrument is simply a tool. You know what our bodies are? Tools. Your tongue and mine is a tool to do the will of God. My feet are tools to do the will of God. The Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Our feet are supposed to be taking the gospel to people. Uh, our hands are to be laboring as men. We're to labor to provide for our families, with our, working with our hands, that which is good. The fact of the matter is, is our bodies are now not instruments for our own pleasure. They are instruments of righteousness. That's what the Bible says. So we're to yield our, our, ourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Colossians would tell us this. We'll read this very quickly. In Colossians chapter 3, talking about our members, the members of our body, we're to mortify them, the Bible says. That means make sure that your members of your body are dead to sin. No longer you're supposed to be using your, your body to commit sin. Now that you're saved, you've been freed from that. Now, the Bible says in uh, verse 1 of Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth, for ye are dead. We just read what that means in Romans 6. Dead to sin, alive unto God. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for the which things the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now, 
but now ye also put off all these. And he's saying, you're saved now. Put off the uncleanness, put off the fornication, put off the lasciviousness, put off the covetousness, No, put off anger, put off wrath. You are now to use your members to do right. Now, I believe this, that the devil has, is so skillful at getting us to believe things that aren't true. And as saved people, we can believe that we're still supposed to serve sin. And God says, no, your bodies now belong to me, so you reckon this. You're no longer under the dominion of sin. Reckon to know that your body and the members of your body are to be used as instruments of righteousness. We ought to ask ourselves tonight in a very practical way. Take inventory. Think about how you've used your body this week, your tongue, your hands, your feet, your eyes, and say, is that righteous? Is that just? Is it honest? Righteous has to do with justice, honesty, equity, that which is virtuous and true. And if not, you know, I'm using my body is being used as an instrument of sin. I'm out of the will of God. For a child of God, God says, no, that's past. Now your body is an instrument and the members of your body instruments of unrighteousness. How I many you know you can sit and take your mind and concoct uh, a way to do something wrong and get by with it. What the Bible calls devising evil. I mean, you know, there are men who put their intellectual prowess to work planning how to do evil to people. Oh my, yes, in this age of technology, if some of these men would put their intelligence to work doing good, and thank God there are those that do. But the fact is, you might sit at home and think, here's something I want to do. In my body, I think this would be fun. I'll look at this. I'll listen to that. I'll engage in that activity. I think that would bring me pleasure. Your lust is craving something. And you begin to use your mind now to devise how I can do something evil and get by with it. Do you realize all that's just wicked? That's the way a lost person lives. Rather, you know what I should do? I should use my brain, use that faculty of my body to say, how can I overcome the temptation I'm facing right now? I could open my Bible and read it with my eyeballs. I could open my mouth and begin to pray and say, God, you know the temptation I'm having to act like I'm still a prisoner of sin when your word told me I'm not. You realize we have choices to make with our body. That's what freedom is. It gives me the ability to choose right. I have the ability to either pray or refuse to pray. I have the ability to either go to God and for mercy and go to His Word and flee. I have the ability to take some of Scripture and hide it in my mind and my heart so that when I'm faced with that temptation, I can open my lips and answer my adversary with the very Word of God. But how many Christians don't take the liberty we've been given to do what's right and just do it? That's what Paul's trying to tell them. You are free to use your body to do right. Isn't that a glorious truth? We're free to read our Bibles and believe it. We are free to obey it. We are free to have pure eyes. We are free to use our ears for hearing God's Word, to use our ears to hear the needs of other people, to use our ears to listen to a lost person and come up with the wisdom of God from God to answer them with the Word of God. We are free to do right. So yield the member as an instrument of righteousness, not unto sin. Oh, that God's people would get a hold of this wonderful truth. There's a call to reckon the reality of salvation, the change of our relationship to sin, the change of our relationship to our Savior. A call to refuse sin's reign in my life. A call to refuse to resign to sin. A call to refuse 
readiness to sin. There's a call to present ourselves to the Lord and our bodies as instruments of righteousness. And again, I'll remind you, he's talking about our mortal bodies, the, the very house we live in. And finally, there's a call to realization. He wraps it up, the thought, in verse 14. At least he says, for sin, that's what we've been saying throughout the entire message, shall not have dominion over you. Sin is, if you're a child of God, sin is not to be your master. Sin shall not have dominion over you. What's he say then? For you're not under the law. It's under the law that sin had dominion. You're not under the law, you're under grace. Under the law, sin is provably our master. That's why the law was given, to prove we're bound in sin. It's our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so he's dealing with a couple of things. You have escaped the curse of the law through the work of Jesus Christ. The law demands your death, but you've escaped. The Lord Jesus took that for you. You're, not, you're no longer under the law. You're under grace. You know, he's dealing with two things. You've escaped the condemnation of the law, and you are enabled now by God's grace. What the law did shut you up in the prison of sin. Jesus Christ came and set you free. And all, this is what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, all the riches of his righteousness are yours. Whatever I'm facing in my flesh is a temptation. Don't you know that Jesus Christ faced it? Do we not know that he has the capability to conquer it? There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but with the temptation... They'll also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God would have us reckon tonight that when he saved us, he changed our relationship to sin and the Savior. When he saved us, he gave us the power to refuse sin's control in our life. When he saved us, he gave us the liberty to be yielded to God as instruments of of righteousness. And we need to realize our escape from sin has put us not under the law, but under grace, the enabling power of God to do right. We were here this morning. We go to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, he deals with these two aspects, escape and enabling. 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We're no longer under the law. We've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, so on and so forth. And he talks back there in verse 3, that verse we've been looking at, that... Uh, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. I would remind us tonight, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, we're told that our body is the temple of God. Our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. If God has saved us, and by the way, if you're here tonight and God has saved you and given you assurance of salvation, the devil come along and say, but you can't lay claim to that. Oh, yes, you can. Are you trusting Jesus Christ? You believe that he is who the Bible says he is? You've put your faith in him? Then you've been liberated. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under the law. You're under grace. God has forgiven you for your sins against him, and God has promised to give you anything you need to carry out his will. Amen? Look at Ephesians chapter 3 as we close tonight. Ephesians chapter 3. I believe I said this this morning. I'll say it again tonight. Most of God's children are living beneath their privileges. Living beneath our privileges, meaning we've been given so much in the Lord Jesus Christ that we're not tapping into and frittering away our lives, acting like we're still slaves to sin when we're not. How, what a waste would it be for the man we, the illustration we gave earlier, the young 
uh, young boy who's been in captivity for his benefactor to come and be beaten and bruised so he could set him free. Open that prison door and say, you are free to go. That young man say, well, I appreciate that, but the fear of leaving what I'm familiar with is too great. And I appreciate you opening the door. Maybe someday I'll change my mind, but I think I'm just going to stay right here. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and gather firewood. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and haul water. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to work until my fingers are bleeding for those who I've been used to working for. And then tomorrow night, I'll come back and I'll sleep in this cell again. The benefactor says, you know you don't have to do that. They no longer have dominion over you. I came and set you free. Yeah, but it's what I'm used to. And the fear of the unknown is too great. I'm just going to live here in this cell until I die. Got a question. Is the benefactor going to grab him and make him leave that cell? No, or he's no different than the people he was under captivity to before. He just gave him freedom to leave the cell. You may be here tonight and you're saved, but you're living in the cell of sin. And I believe by this very message tonight, God is saying, you don't have to. I opened your door. But you know what? If you're going to leave that cell, there's only one way you're going to leave it, and that's following the one who set you free. Because all you've known is prison. Meaning, we are dead now to sin, but we've got to be alive unto God. Our our ear has to be attentive to Him. And so then, Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible says in verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What I'd have us see that every unrighteous thing we've dealt with in this series on the believer and the body we are free to put away. We are free to say, nope. You know how you'll find out your freedom? Test it. When you're tempted to sin, just purpose in your heart, you know what? I know that Satan would want me to believe that I'm still his servant, but I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to say, no. And I'm going to, I'm going to submit to God, resist the devil, and watch what the devil will do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The best way to find out you're free is exercise your freedom. The best way to know is instead of using the body to, I said, every unrighteous thing we've looked at, you're free from that if you're saved. And every righteous thing we've considered, whether with the mouth or the hands or the feet or the ears or the eyes, whatever it may be, I am now liberated to do. The question is, am I using my liberty that I've been given in Christ Jesus to use the very instruments, my body, as instruments to obey God with? Or am I still using them as instruments to disobey him with? May I say this? If tonight you say, I know I'm saved, then doesn't there come a time where you say that I'm done living like a slave and exercise faith in the word of God? I'm not talking about being arrogant. I'm talking about having confidence in God's word. Saying, well, I'm no longer a servant to sin. I believe God about it. Reckon yourself to be truly dead indeed unto sin. How many believe you are free to give the gospel to another person this week? then what's going to keep us from doing it? If I'm free to do it, and it's a right thing to do, we'll just use it as an example. If I'm free to truly use my tongue to praise God, 
When was the last time I said something in public about how good God is? I'm free to. And it's right to. Amen? Amen. 